Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Brad McNamara, co-founder and president of Freight Farms. Freight Farms are the pioneers of hydroponic vertical container farming, which is kind of a fancy way of calling these little container farms that give farmers all the bells and whistles they need to produce fresh, healthy produce 365 days a year, regardless of where they live. And today, Freight Farms is the leading global manufacturer of these types of farming containers, spanning 25 countries and 44 U.S. states. And their customers represent a wide variety of industries, from entrepreneurs and small business farmers to nonprofits and universities across the country. And in the episode, Brad and I will discuss what actually inspired the initial eureka moment of Freight Farms, how the technology works and what the core product offering is, some of the customer stories he's most proud of, how industries are leaning on Freight Farms during this time of the pandemic and through other important initiatives, and what he thinks the future of food production is gonna look like. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Brad McNamara, co-founder and president of Freight Farms. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. Brad, first of all, I I talked to you before we kicked off. Great to see another Massachusetts local doing some awesome work in the world. Let's start with the basics. What is Freight Farms? It's a great question. I want to start with sort of who we are and what we do. And so Freight Farms, at this point, we're the world's leading manufacturer of container farming technology. We got our start uh, in 2010 and really innovated around the very first hydroponic sort of vertical container farm built inside the shipping container. It all spun out of what our mission was and why we started the company to innovate around accessibility and the modular aspect of farming technology, really at the end of the day to empower people to grow fresh, healthy food in their local community year round, anywhere in the globe where it's needed. And that's really just continued to be made more and more important by everything that's gone on in the world, climate change, social unrest, everything we're seeing. And today it's pretty exciting. We have customers that are you know, cover 44 states and 26 countries. So we have the largest network of IoT connected farms in the world. Oh my. Okay, so there's a lot I want to dive into there, but the the part of this particular conversation that fascinates me most is when you launched this in 2010, it was really many years before climate broadly speaking has become a, a pretty sexy topic in the world of VC and starting your own venture. And it it just fascinates me that back in 2010, you had this inkling that there's a huge opportunity here and uh, maybe a set of problems and the best way to solve it would look like it is today. So if we rewind back to 2010, what was that first eureka moment? I think the idea of a eureka moment is hard to really capture in one moment. I think especially Mm -hmm. for us and everything that we were trying to accomplish, it was a series of moments. And a lot of it was undefined in 
terms of what is the future going to look like? What is the world in 2020 look like? And it kind of came down to two core pieces of what we believed would be true in 10, 20, 30, 40 years around food and the needs. And one was the belief that we needed to decentralize the food system. And two was we needed to really democratize food production and get more people involved, get more people empowered to supply food to their communities year round. And I mean, to us, it seemed like these were from a sustainability, from a business, from a world perspective, just made sense. So when you think about decentralizing the production system, you want to reduce food miles, lower transport emissions, create traceability and transparency in the supply chain, and ultimately just deliver fresher, healthier food that reaches the consumer in minutes or a few feet, not a few thousand miles, and increase access because it's right in the community. And a big mm-hmm. piece for us for the food system was, again, democratize it and empower people to be a part of the solution that we saw for the future. And so it really came down to putting the power of hyper-local food production into people's hands. And the best way mm-hmm. we thought to do that was to create the company, create the technology, and, and see what happens. Before we get into the state of affairs today, I want to zoom in to the technology stack. What are the product offerings that are underneath the Frick Farms umbrella today? And what exactly do those actually do in real life? Sure. So to keep it simple, uh, break it down into our core product offerings. And then there's a lot of things that we do, I'd say, behind the scenes, above the scenes, whatnot, that we can get into. But we break it down to it. Our, our core offering is one, the greenery, which is the hardware platform, and two, farmhand, which is the software IoT platform. So the greenery is the most advanced hydroponic container farm available. It's been iterating for a number of years using tons of user testing and data. And it was launched last year. It was the successor of our first generation hardware product, which we called the Leafy Green Machine. And we're actually currently rolling it out all over the country and customers internationally. To give you like a picture, like paint a picture, which is really difficult to do given how cool the product is. Um, It's a 320 square foot, very approachable, data-driven hydroponic vertical container farm. So what that really means is it enables 365-day year-round growth of fresh produce anywhere in the globe in any climate with no pesticides and no herbicides. And the system uses over 99% less water than traditional agricultures. And in some locations, our systems are actually water positive, which is really cool. And when we thought about it, it's specifically designed to enhance the growth of a wide array of crops. Like the greenery was custom built and designed really to make it not just acceptable for leafy greens and sabrascas, but to expand the opportunity into root crops, vine crops, edible flowers, and really be flexible. So we created a flexible internal configuration that allows all those different varieties, also allows a lot of different applications. But at the end of the day, the container farm, the greenery, allows for tremendous speed to market. So you can install Mm -hmm. and have your first harvest in as little as eight weeks. And the nice piece is it's all fully integrated with the the software operating system. So farmhand, which 
you know, to get into that a little bit, that's the proprietary IoT platform that's integrated into all of the operations. So essentially connects all the environmental inputs for optimal crop growth. And it's right in the, the palm of the farmer's hand. I mean, the name itself is a little tongue in cheek in that you say you have, <laughs> you have a farmhand in your pocket. And it really is that, you know, data-driven, you know, approach to streamline the automation and really at the end of the day, lower the barrier to entry for people to become efficient, successful farmers without a deep background in agriculture or ag tech or hydroponics. And again, it just allows to reduce the in-farm labor and operates remote control. So that's really nice from a connectivity standpoint. And again, just gives complete transparency to the crops from seed all the way through harvest. And there's a few things that happen that's really great for the farmer and for empowering people, but there's also a lot of data that translates into really phenomenal growing recipes and really allows the network of farmers to to share recipes, to update recipes and precisely control their ideal terra noir for different crops, you know, temperature, humidity, Mm -hmm. light, intensity of spectrum, airflow, all the things they allow you to unlock just a spectrum of plant characteristics, flavor, color, texture, size. And what's nice is it's a uniform platform that you can replicate the conditions of a particular place or a particular time. And you can do that whether you're in Boston, Alaska, Dubai, Texas, what have you. And really then kind of gives the power to the farmers to tailor the crops to meet their specific Mm -hmm. needs. So you can really be a responsive, involved grower in the community. And I think we could all agree that the continued effects of climate change and what's happened in the world, we won't get into that just yet, but the the level level of hyper-local and control has continued to become more essential uh, for the entire food Mm -hmm. system. I I want to actually zoom in a bit further on how you decided – to choose platform approach versus supporting customers one-to-one. Because I think maybe in the earlier days, there's two ways of thinking about the opportunity. You see this set of problems and you say, we are going to own the full stack, right? We're going to create the hardware, we're going to create the software, and then we're also going to then serve whichever kind of set of customer segments fit the need in in that given community. From day one, did you set out to be effectively like a Shopify for farmers where you give them all the tools they need and they know their customers best, right? So they can serve them based on those needs. Or did you have a different approach where you said, huh, maybe we can do all of the above? At what point did you decide how the actual business itself would manifest? Yeah, so I think the decision in how the business should manifest itself comes down into why we started the company and our goals for for doing it. And when we started out, the whole idea was to make freight farms, a farming platform and like a tool that could be used by most people around the world. And that's really Mm -hmm. why when we think about the modular design, the shipping container, you start there and expand out. The container itself is easy to transport. There's established infrastructure around the world to do it. It can be placed super close to the consumer on site in a lot of cases, eliminating emissions and then scale up, start with one, two, three, but also snap into existing community and business infrastructures and be very flexible. So when we were thinking about that by design, like the standardization of the farms actually 
expands the possibilities of what farmers around the world could then grow and share recipes and really integrate directly into the communities they'd serve. So I guess the mm-hmm. most close analogy would kind of be that Shopify aspect. But in a lot of ways, what we wanted to build and did build was you know, really just a product and a, and a platform that went right in and opened doors for collaboration, for creating opportunity, and for connection. Because really, at the end of the day, that's what local food is all about, connecting the farmer and the community. And, you know, really didn't, to us, there was so much opportunity and people are so creative that it made more sense than anything to say, you know what, let's see if we can unlock the potential of all the brilliant independent people around the world. You know, because I think there's a saying, you know, what is it, you know, genius is, you know, is is like, is not evenly, is evenly distributed, not evenly accessed or something like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it comes down to like, could we provide tools to empower people who have these brilliant ideas that are going to, you know, make a great impact on their local community and then support them in doing so. That's amazing. I I think one part of the freight farm story that I think is even more relevant now than ever is it actually circles back to the initial inspiration is how do you decentralize the farm instead of the world, let's say United States specifically, relying on a very small few set of producers. And because of that, if any of those supply chains break, the ripple effects are substantial. And I think we saw that over the last few months, right? As we saw meat plants and some of the the name suppliers of meat and produce to the world shut down, it had massive consequences. So my question for you is, how have you seen the freight farm platform step up over the last few months? I, I can imagine that the entrepreneurs, the nonprofits, grocery have been kind of compelled to lean on the magic and the resilience of a freight farm more than ever. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen some phenomenal stories and examples, and it really comes down to our customers. And like you said, and and there's a range of customers that have responded and had to respond. And we've seen our small business farmers that have been able to quickly pivot and become an integral part of the food supply within their local community. We did a webinar with one of our farmers in, I believe, the Teton Valley, where with with COVID, something like 99% of his restaurant clients shut down. And he was able to pivot immediately, adjust his crops and what he was growing, partner with another local producer, and create a kind of drive-in farmer's market, where people in that valley, which is treacherous to get through from trucks and whatnot, could go direct to consumer and is now you know, totally swamped with with demand you know is, is looking he's, he's going to need to expand to keep up and it, we continue to see those stories and i mean the stories from our customers that are most exciting are in that same vein where during these times you see the breaks in supply chain and the centralized system and mm-hmm. it's all about the next generation it's all about the future where that the system is going to change and people have to be aware of it. People have to be educated and interested and, and, and be part of the solution. And so that kind of comes back to a core belief of the company that everyone should participate in 
what is ultimately the joy of eating fresh, healthy uh, local food, you know, regardless of location, climate, socioeconomic background. And so we've worked with places like a Second Harvest Heartland in Minnesota. It's a food bank, you know, part of the Feeding America network to provide, that provides access to fresh food for their communities. They have a farm right on site and the local community is able to work in the farm, be part of the solution. You know, we have an organization down in Miami. It's called the Lotus House and it provides uh, women and children that are experiencing homelessness with, uh, they call it a holistic residential facility, which it's that and so much more, but it helps them rebuild and grow. And uh, a large part of their approach is at the intersection of food, health, education, and community. And so they have a greenery right on site and it's a, it sits at the core uh, of their initiatives, which is really interesting. And, and I mean, the future being in the hands of you know, the young, I guess, who are in school. And that's where, where I get really excited when we see all the different applications between the grade schools and universities. They're all, A, increasing their local food options in the cafeteria, which is great. They're all looking to shorten their supply chain. But they most importantly, they want to give students hand on, hands-on experiential learning. And so we have 30 plus schools across the country that use our farms to grow right on campus and be really a part of the campus community and make food a core piece of that. Okay. There's a couple points there that I want to delve into a bit further because they're super interesting. The very first one was the customer story of someone transitioning their freight farm into a drive-in farmer's market. I'm curious, how does it actually work? Do you pull up, you say, hey, I want X, Y, Z, and they bring it to your window? Like, do you know how that actually came to life? Essentially, the, the logistics and the blocking and attacking of it are, are kind of that as you outlined it. And we did a whole webinar with him that's it's on the Freight Farms website. If you know people are really interested in getting the details, I mean, it's a fascinating story. He's a phenomenal entrepreneur. His name's Dave Riddle, and the company name is Kloss and Green. So I really want to plug them because he's a phenomenal founder and a great operator. And really what happened is that the consumers, they were very clear and they wanted more than ever at that point to shorten the supply chain. And it was all about touch points and it was very transparent. It was very clear. You know, I'm Dave, I'm here, I'm six feet away and you can pick up your share and the, the produce that's here in a drive through parking lot set up and you're driving and you're literally four feet from the farm and six feet from the farmer and getting your fresh local produce. That is so cool. And then the other piece about the nonprofit you're working with, I I listened to this other podcast. It's called my first million, even though it's kind of a, kind of a wanky title, but the podcast itself is great. And they went through this interesting bit about meditation and how this year We've seen record installs for some of the name brand apps like Calm and Headspace. But I think, and I'd be curious, I don't know what the data is, but my hunch is that churn on these apps are pretty high. This is anecdotally speaking. A lot of people I know will download it, they'll use it a couple times, and then they'll churn out. And part of it is like a lot of people just don't have the patience to go through that type of rep. Whereas... Another form of meditation, active meditation, is a really interesting subcategory here. And one manifestation of that has been this guy who runs – I'm looking on the site. It's like bonsaime.io or something of that nature where he'll literally live stream himself 
tending to bonsai trees. And he has a whole course catalog of how to take care of your own bonsai trees. But it's effectively headspace, but repurposed in an active format. And I think the broader takeaway here is there are a list of kind of these like meditative mental health benefits that are fundamentally integrated in the practice and the motion of producing your own food and caring for plants. I'm not sure if you you've you probably can attest to that personally, but yeah. To me, that guy that has to be just like a, a beautiful feature mm-hmm. of the freight farm kind of cascade of benefits and advantages. Yeah, I can attest to that personally. Again, active meditation for me, I have trouble sitting still and concentrating and all those things like I'm sure a lot of people do. So uh-huh. I require activity to really calm myself. And it, it's interesting because, again, coming back to our customers, because they use the technology and the platform in such fascinating ways that have such great impact. I mean, we've seen our customers that they integrate their farms in so many different and I think ways that we never thought, you know, would have never imagined in these initiatives, in education programs and ecosystems, you know, we have a few customers, like one is uh, Zeponic Farms. It's basically a set of brothers who started a, a farm in Virginia. And it was really meant to be, you know, Zach started the, the, the farm as a way to work with his brother and some of his brother's friends and, and schoolmates from his school who are autistic. And, you know, one of the things they found was that the calm, the repetition, the action, of being in the farm and tending to the plants and, and all of the things that you just laid out were extreme. I mean, it was already known were very therapeutic, but could also empower them and give them different skills and unlock really some superpowers around their ability to be phenomenal farmers and overall just support the employment opportunity for, for not just them, but anybody with special needs and, and autism. It's really phenomenal mm-hmm. to see. And we're also, I think I want to say, you know, we have a few farmers that are veterans and are using their farm platform as a way to work with other veterans who are reintegrating into as a civilian and, you know, use it as active therapy and as a way to feel empowered and gain new skills and do something that they can be passionate about just as passionate and I'll say successful as they were in the military. So the, the mm-hmm. company I'm thinking of is OD Greens, which is in Ohio. And so it's fascinating to see you know, active meditation and workforce development, skill building, but in a lot of ways, just allowing people who are looking for something and food connects so sort of viscerally to everyone, it really unlocks passion and unlocks you know opportunity for people who might be looking for that. And that, that's really cool to see. Wow. Man, I just got to say, I'm, I'm kind of geeking out over here because when you look at the big economic winners over the past several decades, the the companies who managed to build a platform that, that enables and unlocks this type of potential potential are massive. They have massive outcomes. The problem is it's like virtually impossible to do. It's like really hard to pull off what you've done. You look at one of Amazon's products, it's Deep Lens, 
It's really like a camera. I don't know if you've seen it, but it, it's like off the shelf comes pre-trained with a bunch of deep learning algorithms. And it says, hey, like we're going to give you the hardware. We're going to give you like all these software capabilities. Run with it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing like with Apple and Microsoft. And to me, I just see unlimited potential for freight farms, but not just economic potential, but the impact potential is pretty hard to quantify. I I want to get your take on if you think we're in a junction here, a turning point where food systems more broadly are going to start transitioning from largely centralized to decentralized. We had uh, Jeremy from Avalo Gardens on the, on the show mm. who runs like freight farms, but for kind of your backyard garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we have more and more of these people talking about the momentum, I, I can't help but feel compelled and convinced that maybe maybe COVID was the turning point. Like maybe that was the cherry on top. Like what do you think? Are we at this major turning point where decentralized becomes the mainstream? The short answer, I believe, is yes. I don't think it was just COVID. I mean, COVID obviously shone a light on a lot of issues with a fully centralized system around food. But with everything else that's happening with inequality, social unrest, and just a lot of the deep fractures in the country right now, it exposes a lot of issues. And again, food is central to all of that. So I think, yes, like decentralized is going to be the path forward. I would say that it's going to be a myriad of solutions. So there's certain Mm -hmm. aspects of centralized production that truth be told, make sense. They're really efficient. They get the right products to the right people in the right condition, but there's a much wider spectrum of the food system that isn't performing up to par. And I think it's a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with the massive drive over the last 50, 60 years to centralization, where centralization had to be the winner. And so it was a one size fits all. It's just centralized. That can't always be the case. You know, the, mm-hmm. There's not one solution for everything, especially in something as diverse and dynamic as food. And so you're absolutely going to see more and more distributed production. And I think where we see the big opportunity is to not be the biggest food brand, not be this, not be that, but to really take what we've seen already happen and magnify it. So really mm-hmm. allow people, you know, it's, it's again, humans are so important to food. We eat it, so we need to be involved in every step of it. And so empowering all those different people around the globe to apply a distributed food production in the way that's best for their community. You know, so mm-hmm. we, we would not want to come in and just say, this is the way you should do it. You know, ultimately, mm-hmm. it just comes down to give people the infrastructure to meet the unique needs that they see locally, because they're always mm-hmm. going to know much better than we would, you know, as a tech company in Boston, you know, mm-hmm. how to best feed, empower and, and, and grow their community. Mm-hmm. Question. Well, are you a Rogan guy? Do you ever watch or listen to any of his podcasts? I have not. I like. I feel like I should be, but I, I'm not. And yeah, I think you're 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 not the first person who's asked me that, and it's making me think I, I should probably too. <laughs> he has. I mean, he's 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 definitely you know, he's done a great job. But one of his guests, he had Joel Slotin on from Polyface Farms, and Joel had one of the more compelling 
takes on the evolution of food production today and his way of contextualizing it was talking about how much the typical American spends on food versus healthcare on an annual basis. And he talks about how 30 years ago, the distribution of spend was, I think, 18% to 9% between food and healthcare. And fast forward to today, those ratios have flipped. Now we spend roughly 9% on the food we eat and 18% on the cost of healthcare delivery. And Mm -hmm. it brings up a really compelling takeaway, which is, is the 99 cent burger priced properly, right? (laughs) Like that is the fundamental problem right there. Yes, it's cheaper, but is it actually cheaper over the course of a lifetime that we're spending 99 cents on a burger? Super interesting. Yeah. Um, And I I mean, it's a really interesting point. And I mean, the 99 cent burger again, is the result, in my opinion, of a, an initiative and a drive where at a certain point in, in history, it was all about calories. Just get calories to people as efficiently, as cheaply as possible. And that's the, kind of the centralized system way. And as mm-hmm. we've seen, there's certain externalities and, and long-term impacts that, I, that just you couldn't have known that 60 years ago, you know, be it all the health impacts of diet-related issues, you know, diabetes, hypertension, all these other things. And at this point, technology has somewhat, I don't want to say caught up, but has also surpassed. And we can now and could, could and should think about it more holistically in terms of not just calories, but also nutrition, where, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the idea of food as medicine is no, you know, in a lot of ways, no longer this sort of niche, you know, not really talked about thing. People are admitting and, and doctors and, and mainstream society have, have said, you know, yes, food is an important part of health and of long-term health. And so I think we, you know, we're flipping to that and, you know, it's a true statement that, you know, a lot of the externalities that go into a 99 cent burger are not, not priced in and they will have to be over time. But it, more importantly, I think the drive needs to not be towards just calories at any, at any cost but to calories that also are, are good for the, good for the, the human and have long-term mm-hmm. benefits. And that's, that's really where things are going. And it's kind of funny you ask, and we're talking about this, so we actually just did a, a webinar with a customer called Pillsbury United in, in Minnesota, where mm-hmm. they have a community grocery store called North Market. They put a farm right in the parking lot all around the idea that it's – it's one thing to have fresh, healthy, nutritious food in a community. Another part is to get people to eat it and to adopt it and to understand it. And it, it's the same concept. So the food that you grow, for some reason or another, tastes better. And you're more inclined to eat it. And so mm-hmm. Pillsbury United is, is running all sorts of programming around wellness and classes and nutrition education and cooking and, and everything that has to do with food and eating healthy. And so it's really inspiring to see the work they're doing. And I'm just really proud that Freight Farms gets to play, you know, a small part as the platform that they built on to make that happen. Wow. That's so cool. Brad, before we segue to the 
really back end of the interview where we actually transition out of freight farms and get into some fun questions. My, my last question for you is a question about the roadmap here. I think when you look at some of these big platforms like Shopify and Stripe and really some of the big name brands that have been enablers for great opportunity in the world, one of the byproducts of being the platform is that your loyal customers say, hey, we we want that. It would be great if we had that. So my question for you is, to the extent you feel comfortable, what do you think freight farms will introduce over the next year, three years that are really going to delight your existing customers? It could be like feature requests that they're saying, Brad, come on, bring this to the life, bring this to, to the world or something that you and the team are tinkering on. Um, anything you feel comfortable sharing, I, I'd love to hear. Sure. Yeah. I would love to reveal everything we plan to do over the next you know couple of years because in all honesty, it's a really exciting point in in time and in history for the food system, for the technology, but also for freight farms as a company where we sort of reached somewhat of a critical mass uh, where that being the largest network of IOT connected farms on the globe, again, allows us to take in so much diverse feedback. And to the point you made in the question, it can be really difficult to you know, sort of pare that down into what's important. And what I can say is what's in the works always comes back to why we started the company and what it's all about. And it really has to do with empowering people and providing better infrastructure for more people to produce food you know, locally where they are. So we have some we have some initiatives that are coming down that I can't get too deep into to really empower different communities internationally, but also open up uh, the opportunity for education, collaboration, and getting more people involved in what it means to be a future generation farmer. Um, so to continue to open nice. more eyes around that space. And again, it's what's what's really exciting about who we are as a company, the, the point in time that we're at is we can really speak to the the next generation that's coming up that's beyond digital native to that point, you know, and but are also so aware and so active and want to make a difference and provide mm-hmm. them with a path and an opportunity to say, I, I can make my own way. I can be deeply involved in technology. I can be growing food and I can be a pillar part of my community mm-hmm. all around the things that I want to do and that I love and feel really good about it. Nice. Yeah. And hey, well, good. you've left, <laughs> you've left us on a, on a cliffhanger. So we're going to have to have you back, you know, in a, in a couple of months after you announce these things. Yeah. I mean, that's really the driving force, but I mean, the, uh-huh. the technical aspect behind it is really just kind of building on our, in, in a lot of ways, our previous success, you know, where we've done, uh-huh. we've done research partnerships with you know, like NASA about deep space exploration and growing food on the moon and Mars, which was really fun and cool. And a lot of that has been built into our pipeline. I've been more, wow. you know, I've done, I've done things and been looking at CRISPR technology, seed development there, really to unlock opportunity around nutrition and production and texture. So there's a lot of things on the technical side, but it all feeds into the ultimate mission of what we do. Wow. I'm stoked to see what comes of that. So here's one of the 
more fun and entertaining parts of every interview that I enjoy. It's when I pitch you an idea and you give me your bullish or bearish take. Are you down? Sure. <laughs> so we had uh, the head of communications from Lilium, the electric jet or electric taxi company based out of Munich. He was on the show, I think actually last week, two weeks ago. And he brought up this really compelling idea, something that he actually pitched when he was working at Walmart's grocery subsidiary. And the idea was to build out effectively the Amazon locker for grocery delivery. So imagine most of the world does not live in big city. You have houses, you have a mailbox out front. And his vision for this type of product is that maybe right next to your mailbox, it would be something purpose-built for the recipient or the taking in of food. Mm -hmm. And you'd have all these bells and whistles that define security and maybe the unit itself is chilled or heated up based on the food being received. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, there's a lot of existing infrastructure that this unit can tap into, right? Everyone has power. You can plug it in. So question for you is, at least twofold. A, just high level, what is your bullish or bearish take on this type of product? And maybe over the long term, do you see a future where something like this exists? I'll pause to think about it, but <laughs> I don't think I need to pause that long. I mean, I would be, I would say generally pretty bullish on that concept. I love anything that takes a proven model infrastructure way of doing business from the past and updates it, upgrades it, and makes it more viable for the future via technology. So as you were as you were pitching me the idea, I immediately went to, there was one neighborhood that we lived in for a little while, which was really cool. It We had a milkman and literally milk, hmm. a perishable good, was delivered into, at the time, a pretty terrible you know, tin and styrofoam box where you know, it was very rudimentary. There was a slip that was left in the, mm -hmm. in the bin when he dropped off the milk, I guess he'd pick up the slip and come back the next day with, with more milk. So I could sneak in and, you know, put a four next to chocolate milk or something, you know, and you know, that sort of system and setup you know, has existed and I think is due like a lot of things, you know, you know, another, you know, again, mm -hmm. like an example of, you know, Peapod is an early, example of kind of did this with early grocery delivery and so i mm -hmm. think you know from the from my you know very very obviously bullish belief that the distributed food production side of the world will continue to flourish and be more diverse there's absolutely an opportunity to connect you know the, the small local farms with the end consumer in a more direct way and create mm -hmm. that 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 technology bridge to make it you know, viable, but also cost effective. Mm -hmm. 100% agree. And I, I think one of the more interesting characteristics of the idea is thinking through all the second order effects, if this were to be scaled into the world, imagine instead of having to drop off a box that is loaded with all of these coolants, right, all of the inserts, to make sure it stays cool for X amount of hours. 
that that was already like fixed infrastructure at the destination, like a ton of ancillary value there. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think development is, is heading that way. I mean, we've already seen it, you know, obviously, not obviously, but pre COVID, you know, and to, you know, through COVID we've continued to talk to a number of real estate developers. And so the way people are thinking about building housing stock, you know, urban, peri-urban is very different than it was five, 10, 15 years ago in that mm-hmm. the certain, the things that people want now and want in the future, you know, they're looking at putting our units as part of the community. So, you know, a condo or an apartment building or development has a farm built in. And so, you know, the, the logical step to put, you know, a cooled locker or something like that, where people can then literally conveniently in the lobby, grab their mail, if that's still a thing in 10 years and, you know, their, their fresh produce from their farm or even, even better work in their farm, you know, and have Mm -hmm. raised bed gardens, have, you know, a greenery from freight farms, you know, have all these different amenities that ultimately come back down to what people value in where they live and you know it's Mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with comfort health and wellness you know love it brad this is the last question before we part ways and it's my favorite it's this notion of the idea graveyard right and i i feel like you and i are probably like like a lot of other founders where maybe we have this laundry list of ideas in a notes in the notes app on your iphone or one day you think of this idea, maybe you sit on it for 12 hours and you say that was shit. <laughs> That's like, that was terrible. Or conversely, you have this amazing idea, but just don't have the time to go after it. Mm-hmm. So my question for you, and I'll give you a second to think about it, is what are one of these ideas rotting away in your idea graveyard? The idea graveyard and what's, what's really rotting away? <laughs> um, I think there's a few that are fully decayed and are now just uh, are dust again. Uh, <laughs> I think there's there's two that I've been, I guess, thinking about and have thrown away recently. One is just more conceptual and is really intriguing to me. One I I, I want to see I want to see happen. Mm-hmm. First is this idea of almost like a personal public mentor network that is based on on trust. And, and and knowledge is the way I think about it. Essentially, a group of a group of people, almost like a social network, but built on the premise of trust but verify, so that you can you know kind of do the things that we do with sometimes with with Twitter. You know, like you know, lazy Twitter. Mm-hmm. I have a question, and you get a lot of great responses. You know, but you don't know who's who's responding from a qualitative place, a quantitative place, who's an expert, all that sort of thing. It's just an idea because mm-hmm. uh, you know I love I love Twitter and other social networks for that, but there's certain serious questions or things that I'm more interested in that I wouldn't go to them for. The other uh, the other idea that I has been kicking around in the graveyard a little bit and it's super niche and and intriguing, but I had a I had a kid about four years ago. I had a daughter, beautiful beautiful little girl now, and I have a lot of friends who are you know you know having children thinking about having children, just had children. And what I realized is, you know, in this tech entrepreneur world, I didn't, I didn't have a group of 
sort of friends, colleagues to, to, to lean on and to bat ideas off of and to get advice from who live in the same world that we do in startups where, you know, there's always chaos, there's always things going on and it's a unique environment to, to have and raise a child. And so I've been toying with the idea of building somewhat of a network for that specifically to create cohorts of different people in the, in the ecosystem who are, you know, pre-kid, pregnant, about to have a kid, you know, all these things just to create cohorts and allow, you know, true and trusted advice in real time for people who get it. And, you know, just, again, it's like, you know, build, build things that Mm -hmm. you wish you had for yourself. And that's one thing I wish I had. So that would be an idea that's definitely kicking around the graveyard. You know, if I don't do it, which I, like I don't have too. time to do it, I would encourage somebody to do it because I'll I'll sign up and be an active participant. Oh man, both are really interesting. Brad, there's nothing else left to do but roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Red carpet. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I would direct everyone to our website, freightfarms.com. We have a ton of content and webinars that we've done, again, just highlighting the customer stories and all the incredible work that they're doing that really keep us going. And I would love, I would invite everybody to just check those out, see what inspires you. And, you know, if it inspires you to, to become part of the solution, go for it. You know, if it just opens your eyes to what a lot of people are doing, you know, support those local farms, whether they're freight farmers or not. Brad, you're the best. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This is fun. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, If you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at PeterA11. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.